In the midst of her strong condemnation of slavery in antebellum America, Ellen White made a statement that is most interesting as well as most controversial. She spoke about the fate of lost slaves and said that some will not be in the resurrection. What did she mean by this most controversial statement? Welcome to the Ellen White Podcast. Here is your host, Dr. Judd Lake. I'm going to focus in this episode on a controversial statement in the Civil War Ellen White made about slaves. That statement is found in First Spiritual Gifts, page 193. It reads, I saw that the slave master would have to answer for the soul of his slave whom he has kept in ignorance, and all the sins of the slave will be visited upon the master. God cannot take the slave to heaven who has been kept in ignorance and degradation, knowing nothing of God or the Bible, fearing nothing but his master's leash, and not holding so elevated a position as his master's brute, beast. But he does the best thing for him that a compassionate God can do. He lets him be as though he had not been. While the master has to suffer the seven last plagues and then come up in the second resurrection and suffer the second most awful death, then the wrath of God will be appeased. To some readers, it doesn't seem fair that God would keep the poor slaves out of heaven when it was their masters who kept them from a knowledge of the Bible. To others, the idea that these slaves will not be resurrected seems to contradict Scripture, in which all will come forth either in the resurrection of the saved or the resurrection of the lost, John 5, 28 and 29. Finally, some wonder how this statement fits with the fact that not all slaves were ignorant about God. Many knew and loved Him. These concerns are important and deserve answers, but they tend to overlook the main focus of the passage, God's judgment on the wicked slave masters and His compassion on the poor, ignorant slaves. I'm drawing this from my book on Ellen White and the Civil War. This is page 69 and following in the book and provides a concise answer to this most perplexing issue. So a brief analysis of these two themes will will hopefully help resolve the three concerns I just mentioned. First, the passage is the climax of God's judgment on the sin of slavery. In the previous paragraphs, White has indicted the churches in both the North and the South for the sin of slavery. This final paragraph of the chapter places the spotlight on the slave masters. Accordingly, it is the slave master who will answer for the soul of a slave who kept the slave in ignorance and degradation, knowing nothing of God or of the Bible, as White put it. God's justice is satisfies, satisfied when all of the slave's sins are visited upon the master. Consequently, the master has to suffer the seven last plagues and then come up in the second resurrection and suffer the second most awful death. The wrath of God will be appeased, as she put it. And this is when the slave masters are punished for their own sins and the sins of the slaves. Thus, the wrath of God falls on the original perpetrators, of slavery, the slave masters themselves. 
The context does not address all slave masters, but only those who were especially cruel and treated their slaves like brute beasts. During the late antebellum years when this statement was published, the vast majority of slave owners had concluded that religion made their slaves more docile and obedient. There was also testimony of slave owners who treated their slaves humanly and allowed them to practice their religion. Thomas Stonewall Jackson, the famous Confederate general, for example, treated his own slaves with kindness and even created a Sunday school for the slave community so that he could teach them the basics of Christianity. But many recorded slave testimonies describe slave masters who were brutal and cruel. I have a bookshelf full of these testimonies of slaves, books about their testimonies, and it's difficult to read the painful cruelty in which they endured, the beatings that they endured. It's it's horrible to read. Also, during the earliest years of slavery in America, slave masters viewed Christianity as a bar to slaveholding and effective slave management, and thus kept their slaves from experiencing any religion. Neither does the context address all slaves, but only those who experienced such intense, systematic, and demonic cruelty from their masters that they were devastated spiritually and were consequently kept from a knowledge of God. Many slaves embraced evangelical Christianity, and Ellen White saw that many of them will be resurrected at the second coming. But for those slaves under discussion, the fact that many of their cruel owners had professed, professed to be Christians intensified their judgment in White's understanding. Second, the passage is a revelation of God's compassion towards these slaves. The statement, God cannot take the slave to heaven, seems harsh when taken by itself. But in its context, God's mercy is inseparable from his justice. The best thing, as White put it, God can do as a compassionate God and still remain just, remember the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, is to let the lost slave, spiritually ruined by his master, as she put it, be as though he had not been. This unique statement about these eternally lost slaves is best comprehended in the framework of White's understanding of the final events associated with the millennium mentioned in Revelation 20. Because these slaves were kept from a saving knowledge of Christ, they will not be raised in the first resurrection of the righteous at the second coming before the millennium, that is verses 5 and 6 in Revelation 20. But neither will they be raised in the second resurrection of the wicked to experience the second death. That's after the millennium in verse 6 of Revelation 20. So the best thing God does for these slaves is an act of compassion. Although they have been kept in ignorance and degradation, not knowing God, as she put it, they are still recipients of God's pity and mercy. He does not add more affliction to their lives of suffering by putting them through the painful experience of the second death after the resurrection. The first death is their final one, and they will not experience God's wrath against sin, but will be as though they had not been. This scenario fits within the framework of White's conditional immortality annihilationist understanding. Some may object that this some slaves not resurrected exception cannot be found in Scripture. True, there is no text in the Bible that specifically teaches that a certain class of people will not be resurrected. But there are, however, departures from the two general, uh, general, excuse me, general resurrections in Scripture. 
Examples are the special resurrection of the righteous, Moses, for example, in Jude 9, and a special resurrection for the wicked who crucified Christ, found in Matthew 26, verse 64. In light of these exceptions, then, there is no reason on scriptural grounds to deny the possibility that God will make a unique exception for the slaves under discussion and show compassion on them while still being just. Furthermore, the Bible writers often use inclusive language. For example, Jesus said that when he is lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men unto himself, John 12, 32. The word all here is inclusive in the general sense that it embraces all humans on the planet. But this inclusive language did not rule out the fact that not everyone has yielded to the drawing influence of Christ. So also, when Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done good to the resurrection of the judgment. John 5, 28 and 29. He used inclusive language in that verse, which doesn't necessarily rule out exceptions that he and the Father could make. To culminate the theological issues in this paragraph, Ellen White set forth an exception to the two general biblical resurrections in John 5, 28 and 29 and Revelation 20, verse 5 and 6. And she, uh, she did so in which God will leave in the grave a specific class of slaves who were overwhelmed by the cruel treatment from their masters that they were never able to come to an knowledge of Christ. In his divine justice, God cannot take these slaves to heaven without their sins transferred vicariously to Christ, as in Romans 3, 23 through 26. But neither does God punish the slaves for their own sins, according to White. Rather, he transfers the guilt of their sins to the slave masters, who will receive double punishment for their own sins and that of their slaves. Because the slaves' sins were transferred to their slave masters rather than to Christ, who alone can impute his righteousness in return to save them? And they never entered into a saving relationship with Christ, which involves a fitness for heaven. God does the best thing that a compassionate God can do. He leaves them in the grave after the first death as though they had not been, and thus exempts them from the second resurrection and punishing second death, as described in Revelation 20, verse 14. It is important to note that God's compassion on these poor slaves is at the heart of the paragraph. This scenario shows how God is merciful to this abused class of people, and yet remains just in the theological framework of the Bible's teaching on salvation in Christ. Some people might wonder about those who come to a knowledge of God without the Bible, as depicted in Romans 1. But this class of people were not oppressed and kept from a knowledge of God like some of the slaves in antebellum America. So we need to make that distinction. Without question, this is a very interesting and unique statement, and it certainly has been controversial, but I believe when taken in its larger theological context, it does not violate anything in Scripture, and it makes sense, and it gives us insight into how God will deal with the horrors of slavery and those who who perpetrated it, the slave masters, and the cruel way that, that many of them treated their slaves. They will receive double punishment 
in the final judgment. That is White's focus. And as well, God's grace and mercy in putting these poor slaves who never had an opportunity to know God. And in fact, I should add that it was in the earlier years of slavery that the slave owners were threatened by Christianity with their slaves, that it might make them wise and they might think of ways to escape. So they kept him from a knowledge of God in the Bible and they were treated as brute beasts. I remember reading in Frederick Douglass in his autobiography where he describes there were times on the rare days they had off that he just sat and was in a daze and could hardly think. He thought of himself almost as a beast. And probably it's, it's that group uh, in the earlier years of, of slavery that were treated so horribly that is the focus here of this statement. In later years, prior to the Civil War, slaves were able to experience religion and Christianity, as I shared earlier. So with that historical background, I believe it is illuminating to this passage. And so we need to read it in context, in its literary context, as well as its historical context. The literary context is one of a strong condemnation of antebellum slavery. So I hope, friends, that helps illuminate this uh, interesting but controversial statement. I don't know that anybody has a final word on it, but I do not see in any way how this contradicts the overall teaching of Ellen White with regard to salvation and God's grace and mercy, as well as his justice. Thanks for listening. This was a short one, just focusing on this statement. I'm going to deal with some other statements like this uh, in my next couple of episodes, such as... uh, did England declare war on the North during the Civil War? And then Ellen White's most interesting statements about spiritualism and the Union commanders. That's coming ahead. But for now, really appreciate you taking the time to listen. May the Lord bless.